Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Exodus. We're going to talk this morning a little bit about this whole idea of doing ministry, of of serving the Lord, and about the fact that for many of us, the reason we don't serve, the reason we don't get involved in different opportunities ministry-wise is because we really don't think we're needed. We really don't think we're necessary. And I'm not just talking about church programs either. Please understand, ministry is so much bigger than church programs. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how you live your life for God. How you serve the Lord in your life. And again, many of us don't really think that we can. We're grateful just to kind of show up and be there. But we think, me serving God, I, you know, I'm a postal worker. Or I'm, I'm, I work in a kitchen. How can I be a servant of the Lord? Well, we want to talk about that today. Most of you know, or many of you, my, my friends know definitely that, that I love the show Alias. Sunday nights. It's one of the greatest shows on TV, very intense. You never know what's going to happen. You're always left hanging. And the last show that Cheryl and I watched, we have season one at home on DVD, and so we've been moving through these. And we were watching this one episode where Sidney Bristow, the main star, has to take, basically she has to go through the building, the SD6 building where she works as an operative, and there are three columns underneath the building that are packed with C4 explosives, and she has to defuse all of them within ten minutes. And also, it's a typical thing on the show. It's just amazing that she even survives from week to week. But she has to, or there would be no show. Anyway, she's supposed to defuse all these. And she's going around doing this. She has a bag over her shoulder filled with, with these unlikely tools. You look at them, and, and it doesn't seem like they would do her any good at all. But she makes use of them the best that she can. And I was watching that, and honestly, this is the way my mind works. I thought, that's kind of like the church. That's kind of like us. You may have heard someone use the phrase before that we are all tools in God's handbag, in God's tool bag. That we are individually tools within that bag. And some of us are a little rough and a little motley and a little ragged. I mean, look around. We don't think that maybe I have good use. You know, I'm kind of a hammer. How can I help out in the softer things of life over here? Or, you know, I'm, I'm a wrench. How can I move this to there? What can I do for God? We are all tools in God's toolkit. God has placed us there. God wants to reach in and use us. And sometimes we sit in that toolkit for a while, unused. And we start to think, wow, I'm, I'm not really, you know, useful to the Lord. I haven't been used by the Lord for a long time. I've just been sitting in the bag. Well, that's right. But at any moment, he may reach in, grab a hold of you, and say, okay, I have use for you here. I have something I need for you to do. Folks, we need to grasp this this morning, understand this. That you are God's instrument. Believe it or not, recognize it or not, understand it or not, you are God's instrument. He created you. Paul said in Ephesians 2.10, You're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You are God's instrument. And you are created to be a tool in the hand of the Master. Which is awfully comforting because that means I don't have to be the Master. I don't have the power, the authority, the ability. I am like a tool sitting on a shelf and someone might say to the wrench, don't tighten that up. And does the wrench move? No, the wrench needs the master to function. And that's exactly like us in our relationship with God. We're his workmanship. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Paul writes, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works in all things, listen, in all persons. In all persons. 
Verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 12, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. So even the use of the tool is not up to us. It's up to the Lord. Well, this morning I want to look at two unexpected tools that God uses in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. <laughs> if you think God can't possibly use you in the world, look again, because the tools he's about to pull out of his toolkit are a burned out shepherd and a burning shrub. Exodus 3.1 Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. And so Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And then the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, and God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am, which is often what people say when God calls their names. Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Let's pray together. Father, we need your spirit to work these words out in our hearts. Because though we can look at these in Bible study, Father, it's very hard for us as human beings oftentimes to submit to them. To believe, Father, that you really have use for us. That you really could use me. Father, we look to other people, religious leaders sometimes, pastors. God, we'll look to people out in the world who are seeming to make such a massive difference. And then we look at ourselves and think, oh, I've just got to go about the business of, of my life and I'm not really of much use. Father, would you change our minds this morning? And not only change our minds, Father, but I pray that you begin working in the hearts and minds of each of us in this body of of believers. In this fellowship, Lord, to show us the service, the ministry that you have for us. Whether it's here, in this body, in the workplace, at home, Father, open our minds to the possibilities of ministry and what we can truly do to serve you, Father. Be our teacher this morning, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with the exception of Jesus, who obviously stands in the class all by himself, Moses is without a doubt the greatest leader in all of history. The greatest leader in history. Let me remind you that Moses' life can be divided into three 40-year segments. And if you're taking notes, you might jot down. The first 40 years, he was a slave of Hebrews, but raised a son of Egypt. He was a slave raised a son. His his origins weren't the greatest, at least not in Egypt at the time, but he was quickly moved into the palace. And Acts chapter 7, verse 22, tells us that Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. Power in words and deeds. Now, if you look more closely at that statement, it's clear that the power in words statement means that he was a statesman. He was an orator. He had the capability to speak before people. He was powerful in word. He was also powerful in deed, which implies military might and heroics. Not just later with Israel, but earlier in those first 40 years. You ever thought about Moses as an Egyptian military hero, as an Egyptian spokesman? As a man who was impressive to the people, a sort of Colin Powell of his day. 
Well, the first 40 years, he was a slave of Hebrews and a son of Egypt. The second 40 years, he became a shepherd of Midian. And Bible students may remember that shepherds were loathsome to the Egyptians. So the very people that Moses came from would have thought his career choice disgusting, despicable. Genesis 46.34 tells us every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. And so those who would have been so impressed with Moses back in Egypt, with his statesmanship, with his military prowess, would now look at him and say, I guess you just fell apart. He must have had a nervous breakdown because his life really isn't worth much anymore. Well, the third 40 years, the last third of his life, Moses is now the spokesman of God before Israel. A slave of Hebrews, raised a son in Egypt, a shepherd of Midian, and now he's a spokesman of God before Israel. And this is the same Moses who took on an entire empire, drowned an army in its sea by the power of God. He led a company of some three million men, women, and children through the Sinai wilderness, and they were not easy to lead. They were whiners. They were complainers. They were a bunch of babies. Can't we go back to Egypt, Moses, please? We don't have anything to eat here. So there's manna. Oh, but we're tired of the bread. So then there's quail. Oh, but just bread and meat, isn't there something else we can have? We need water. So there's water. And they complain and they whine. And Moses has to deal with that. Parents, if you've got one or two or three or five kids and they whine and complain at you, you have nothing on Moses. Three million people. I imagine that Moses' favorite phrase must have been, it's time to call the Wambulance. <laughs> but he also brought the holiness of God sharply into focus. He taught the people of Israel, and he will teach us as well, through his acts, through his deeds and his words, led by the Spirit, that God's holiness is not to be misunderstood. That God does have expectations. That God does have a greatness about him. As seen even in the moment of the burning bush before Moses can approach God. He's got to take off his shoes. Because God says this place is holy. Not because the ground was holy. Not because the bush was particularly holy. But because God was there. And there are expectations of holiness. But this is cool about Moses. Deuteronomy 34.7 tells us that although Moses was 120 years old when he died, his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. In other words, he was clear-eyed and sharp-minded even on the day of his death. Strong before the Lord. As physically strong as he'd ever been. Mentally sharp as a tack. Now if you've seen Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments, you know roughly half of the movie is spent on 80 years of Moses' life. But what's interesting is if you study the Bible, in two chapters we have dispensed with 80 years. The first two, year, two uh, parts of his life, two periods, the first 40 and the second 40, are over with by the time you hit chapter 3, verse 1. And now, now from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way to the end of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you will hear about the last 40 years of Moses' life, the important 40 years, the 40 years where God is in control. For 40 years where he is a servant of the Father. And I think that's important. It shows us where the significance lies in Moses' life. Not in Egypt, not even in Midian, but in those last 40 years. And it all started one day on the backside of the wilderness. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 3. Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. He didn't even own the flock. His father-in-law's flock, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side. That's literally the backside of the wilderness. He's out there in, in, the, in Nowheresville. 
And he came to Horeb, or Sinai, the mountain of God. A couple of things I want you to note about Jesus. You may be able to relate to, or note about Moses. Sorry, you may be able to relate to these two things. Number one, that Moses is a man who had been burned. He is a man who had been burned. And secondly, he's a man who I believe was burned out. And often the two are related. Moses had been burned. Think about for a moment the real relationship between Moses and Pharaoh. He was raised as Pharaoh's daughter's son. Pharaoh would have been his grandpa, at least there in the palace. He was politically the man who was in line for the throne, and yet he had to flee for his life because Pharaoh, grandpa, wanted him dead. Verse 15 of chapter 2 tells us, When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. You may think, well, maybe the relationship with Moses and Pharaoh wasn't so good. Yeah, but what about the relationship with Moses and his mom? Or Moses and his brother, Aaron. Or Moses and his sister, Miriam. When Moses fled Egypt, understand he left everything behind. He left, yeah, all the political power of the palace, but he also left his family. He left everything he knew. When he got to Midian, he was a nobody in Nowheresville who had no history that meant anything to the Midianites. He lost everything And I believe that Moses knew what it meant to be burned. As a matter of fact, Stephen would later say in Acts chapter 7 verse 35 that Moses' own people literally disowned him. His own people. As he turns from the palace and tries to help the Hebrews out, they turn on him. They disown him. They want nothing to do with him. Moses is a man who knew what it meant to be burned. I think he also knew what it meant to be burned out. Verse 21 of chapter 2 tells us that Moses was willing to dwell with the man and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. He was willing, after all this grandeur of his early life, he was willing to be a shepherd, a loathsome shepherd. Why was he so willing? What led to this point? I think Moses hit a place in his life where he was just tired of it all. Sped up. It had been hard, and even when he tried to make the right choice, it went wrong. The people he tried to save or work for turned against him. It was bad news for Moses. And so he goes out into the wilderness and he shepherds sheep that are not even his own. But here's where the story begins to heat up. God waits until Moses is at this point in his life, until he's been burned and he's burned out. And he's doing nothing with his life. He's just being a shepherd. Now, we have all kinds of spiritual implications of being a shepherd in the church, but just being a shepherd is not the most spiritual thing in the world. It smells. The sheep aren't the most intelligent animals. And so that's all he's doing. What a waste of a man of God for 40 years. Why? Moses didn't think he had anything to give God. Moses, all he had was, you know, skills for sheep. Why would he even think, and you'll see this later on, especially in the end of chapter 3 and on into chapter 4 of Exodus, he doesn't even believe he has what it takes to go back to Egypt. And it's not until he gets to that point that God can use him. See, we get it mixed up. We think, I've got to have myself together. And then I go before the Lord and I lay it out on the table and say, these are my gifts and my talents, use me. And God says, you need 40 years in Midian, buddy. You need some break here. You need some time to find out that for all your tools and all your gifts and all your wonderful ability, you got nothing without me. And when we get to that point, as Moses did, now, now we can be used. 
Acts chapter 7 verse 35 This Moses whom they disowned Saying who made you ruler and a judge Is the one whom God sent to be both ruler And a deliverer With the help of the angel who appeared to him In the thorn bush We'll talk about who that angel is on Wednesday night By the way By the way in case you've been burned In case you feel burned out I have some verses I just want to read to you Isaiah 42 verse 3 A bruised reed he will not break And a dimly burning wick He will not extinguish Psalm 147 verse 3 He heals the brokenhearted He binds up their wounds Malachi chapter 4 verse 2 For you who fear my name The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall Doesn't that sound good? We need to skip more I think in our lives I'm not sure I'd encourage you to do it in the workplace But we need to skip How do I get this healing though? It sounds so good The sun rising with healing in its wings And I'm tired and burned out And I just don't have I'm not ready I don't know what to do with my life How do I get this healing? And Jesus said it And Larry already read it to you this morning Matthew 11:28. Come to me Come to me Come to me, Jesus says. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is not about the hard labor. He is about rest. For my yoke is easy, he says, and my burden is light. So this 80-year-old disowned, disowned, burned-out shepherd is gently led into the presence of the Lord by an even more curious tool than himself. And you've got to admit, in this passage, it's a pretty bizarre and creative use of a shrub. Exodus 3, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire yet the bush was not consumed. Now this burning bush has huge spiritual implications and significance. And while we won't touch on all of those this morning, I want you to understand what I think is the most important thing to know about the burning bush. Are you ready for this? It's ordinary. It's ordinary. It's just a bush. As a matter of fact, it's not even a real special bush in the desert. Most scholars agree it's the acacia bush. Which is kind of a thorny bush. The, the Hebrew word for bush here is sinna, which means prickly or thorny. It was a desert thorn bush. That's all it was. And they were all over the place. They were everywhere. It wasn't like God said, I'm going to create this magnificent bush. And maybe you've seen paintings of the burning bush. And the bush itself looks rather majestic. <laughs> this was not a majestic bush. It was a desert thorn bush. Like I said, likely the acacia bush. Botanists will tell you that thorns, by the way, are simply blossoms that didn't make it. I didn't know that before. Blossoms that didn't quite get all the way out until they kind of stopped and sharpened up and became prickly, like many of us do in our lives. When we don't feel like we make it, we, we just kind of become prickly. A little sharp, hard to deal with. We poke people around us. You're a blossom, feel that, huh? Folks, you might want to jot this down. God chooses an ordinary prickly desert bush through which to call his deliverer and save his people. God chooses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. This is what he does. So if you're feeling ordinary today, great, you're ready. God can use you. 
He chooses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. He could have chosen to rumble from the mountain in power and fire and authority. He could have appeared to Moses with a fire at night or, or maybe a huge cloud by day. He could have blown like a, like a mighty wind, taken Moses to the Red Sea and parted the waters before him and said, I am God, be my deliverer. He does all those things later. But no, for this burned out shepherd, he becomes a burning shrub. Just a burning bush. And draws Moses in. He first chose to manifest himself in a common, ordinary, desert thorn bush. And listen to this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.26, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise among you according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. That's why I'm a pastor. He chose the foolish to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that He may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. If you had told my parents the day I was born that I was going to be a pastor, they would have been shocked. Because the day I was born, I didn't even have an upper lip. I didn't have a, a palate. I had a big cleft. They never thought I would speak normally at all. And God chooses the foolish things of the world, the weak things of the world, to shame the wise. If you feel foolish and weak, hallelujah, you are ready to be used. You are at that place. God chooses the ordinary to do the extraordinary, but there's, there's more, and I want you to hear this. One of the greatest lies of Satan is that ministry is the pastor's job. Not so. Not so. Don't you dare rely on me to make this church happen. Because it ain't gonna happen. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, Paul says, You are Christ's body, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles and second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, administration, various kinds of tongues. And then he says, and listen to this, this is important, a lot of churches miss this, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? And all are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? We see things like spiritual gifts and we want them all. And that's okay. It's okay to be in pursuit of the spiritual gifts that God has for you, but you may not get them all. God may not allow you to have certain gifts on purpose because He knows what you're going to do with them. All don't have every gift. But I guarantee you one thing. You have a gift. You have something God has given you. A spiritual gift He's poured out on you. And you may be going, me? Why? Are you kidding? No, I'm not. The Bible is clear about this. You have something. And the Lord wants to, I believe, reveal to you what that is. Clearly, God uses all sorts of ordinary tools for extraordinary purposes. But you know what else that God uses this acacia bush for in the desert? 
This is amazing to me. Exodus chapter 25 verse 10 tells us, They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, the desert thorn bush, two and a half cubits long, and one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits high, and you shall overlay it with pure gold inside, and out you shall overlay it, and you shall make a gold mounding around it. God uses the ordinary to become extraordinary. Not just to do the extraordinary, but to become extraordinary. He uses the acacia bush to build his ark of the covenant. This amazing box that holds inside of it three amazing treasures. And on the outside it was overlaid with pure gold. Acacia wood overlaid with gold. And inside holding a wonderful treasure. And the ark itself gives me a picture. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 of us. Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This acacia wood desert thorny bush box becomes the long sought after Ark of the Covenant. Israel's Ark that is their picture of God before them. And by the way, what's on top of the Ark? It's called the mercy seat. Two angels bowing toward each other. The mercy seat. The acacia bush will also likely be where the thorns came from that were wrapped around the head of our Savior who brought us mercy. All of this stuff from this little bush, from this common ordinary thing, but God uses the ordinary to become extraordinary. And you, surprisingly, you may not believe this, but you may become extraordinary in your life. Don't seek it. Don't go for it. Don't try to become it. That's not the point. But you may be very well become extraordinary. I went to the dermatologist this last week. And uh, he, I had a little place on my face that I discovered was precancerous. Those are always two you know, words you like to hear. Precancerous. And a little spot on my ear. Yeah, that looks like it could be precancerous too. And he's talking very matter of fact. And I'm going, no. He used the C word. I'm a young man. And I got this picture of me standing up here on a Sunday morning, speaking to you without an ear, with my teeth gone, my hair back about here, and thinking, who's going to want to hear that? And, and this was great. I shared this, and I'm just joking around. And I was talking with Les and Donna earlier this week, and Donna said, you know, but it's not. It's not you that we look at, which, you know, is, is a mercy. It's God in you. It, it's the Lord and His Word. And so I may someday stand up before you as one ugly guy. And if you already think so, the door is right back there. Thanks for coming. The point is this. God will do extraordinary things through us. And it doesn't matter what happens to us physically or where we may think we're headed, our bodies and all that. We get so hung up on the physical. Forget the physical. Work on the spiritual. Get focused in that area because God does miraculous, amazing, wonderful things. And I'll never forget Wally Wilkerson, who was a 70-year-old youth pastor. Coolest thing in the world. This guy was great. He had MS. He shook. He was wrinkled and old and bent. And yet when he looked at you, you saw the power of God in his eyes. And I think to myself, I would like to be that kind of extraordinary. Man, let the physical fall apart. But let God be seen in me. Well, let me ask you a serious question. Do you question whether or not God is using you currently? Or can use you in the future? Or will ever use you? 
Have you been in that place or are you in that place today where you're going, I go to church, I show up for Bible study, you know, I, I pray, but God use me. Listen, gang, if the Lord can employ a burned out old shepherd, if God can make use of a smoldering shrub, the Lord can use you. The Lord can use you. And by the way, notice this in verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. Where does the fire come from? It does not come from the bush. It comes from the midst of the bush. It is not the power of the bush that attracts Moses. It's not the power of the bush that ignites this flame. It is the power of the Spirit of God within the bush that makes it great. Same thing happened with Moses. When he finally accepted the mantle of spokesman and deliverer, God began to burn inside of him. Flip over really quickly and we'll finish to Exodus 34. Exodus 34 and verse 29. Exodus 24, 39. Listen to this. It's awesome. It's very cool. 34.29 It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hands as he was coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. Moses has become the burning bush. He is the burning shrub. A man of no significance in and of himself, but he is on fire. Verse 30, So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. And then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation, and they returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterward, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel as what had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. The burned out old shepherd becomes like the burning bush. He is filled with the fire of God, the glory of God. He sees God, and because he is constantly in God's presence, he has the glow of the Spirit on him. A burned out old shepherd, a smoldering shrub, and you and me. Tools in God's toolkit. And my friends, the question is not, what can I do for God? That's a question that will guarantee burnout. What can I do for you, Lord? I've got to serve you, God. Show me what's next, Lord. Oh, there's a need over here. I'll fill that. There's a need here. I've got to fill that too, and I'm going to do this too. No. The question is not, what can you do for God? The question is, what is God going to do through you? What is He going to do through you? Lord, what will you do in me? We have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Father, open up our hearts to recognize the treasure within us that you have placed there. We know, Jesus, that it doesn't come from ourselves, not our power, not our might, not our ability, not our strength. But Father, in us you plant that seed of your glory. You said, Lord, Jesus, you said that you would abide in us. Father and Son, that that by the Spirit you are always with us. That we do walk around with these jars of clay, breakable, 
aging, cracking jars of clay, but inside is a fire that burns from the midst of us, your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, I do not pray that you show us all kinds of programs and ministries that we can do to be impressive as a church. What I do pray, Holy Spirit, is that you will burn so brightly out of your people here that ministry will be done as you see fit. That service will happen. That people will love each other with a deeper love than they have ever expressed or imagined. Because you are inside of us. And you are growing us. And you are burning there. May we like Jeremiah say that your word within us is like a fire. A fire in our bones. And we cannot hold it in. Father, I just pray this blessing this morning. I pray also, Father, if anyone has not accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, that decision would happen today. And I pray this all in Jesus' name.